you, Daniel and Linda, for leading us in worship, and good morning, everyone. This week I was picking up uh, Graham and a friend after uh, some of us had played Frisbee golf, and, and uh, Jack, and it's not Graham, sorry, Jack and his friend were supposed to be at Music Fest, but I'm not sure how much time they spent there. Uh, I was picking them up at the Dollarama across the street, which probably was an indication of what they were doing and how they were spending their time. But as I got there, Jack had volunteered his help to this gentleman who was having trouble uh, unlocking the chain on his bike uh, and uh, was offering Jack and his friends some money if they would just stay with his bike while he took a taxi home to get some uh, chain cutters or whatever. Uh, and uh, so I volunteered, well, why don't I drive you home and you can get them and... and uh, just as an aside, Allison questioned, perhaps this guy was stealing somebody else's bike, and so I aided him in this crime, but uh, I'm going to believe that uh, he, it was actually his bike that we helped him free up. But anyways, we were, we were driving back to his house, and we just started talking, and uh, uh, it was quite amazed to get to where his house was, and I said, wow, I said, like, I'm not, I don't live in Peterborough, and I'm not really familiar with all these streets. It's kind of amazing. He goes, well, I've only really lived here for four years myself, uh, and I said, oh, really? I said, I, you know, I, it's, it's been about 15 years that Peterborough has been the center of so much of our life, uh, but we still don't live uh, inside of Peterborough. And, and as I was thinking about it this week, that's really all there is to that story, but I was thinking about the, the whole thing about Peterborough and, and uh, we don't live in Peterborough. The last 15 years, lots of things in our life are, are centered in Peterborough, but Peterborough always was this town that always came into play in certain events uh, of my life. And, and probably began with Joy Bible Camp, taking the bus from Toronto, and the last stop was always Peterborough, uh, and then uh, would make its way to Joy. And, and then as far as um, youth camp at Joy, we would always go for a picnic lunch, and we'd go to the zoo, which back then it was such a big activity and and uh, but that that involved Peterborough uh, as well and when I think of it one of my first girlfriends actually came from Peterborough and well before uh, I even had met Allison and uh, it all happened at Joy Bible Camp and so back in the day when I would have been probably 16 the big thing at youth camp was the banquet. And who were you going to invite to the banquet? And uh, during the week, I had met this girl uh, from Peterborough who went to church in Peterborough, and, and we became quite friendly with each other. Uh, I think I even held her hand during that week of camp. I invited her to the banquet, and then it was all over, and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm in Toronto. I just had gotten my license, but I didn't really have any way of getting uh, to Peterborough, and I just figured it was going to end. Uh, and uh, she invites me to her church youth group's fall retreat. And I went, hey, maybe this thing is going to work. And so I got on a bus and made my way to Peterborough. And uh, her parents picked me up and, and drove me to the house. And, and we went on this youth retreat. And I thought, this is going to be fantastic. Well, disaster began as soon as we got on the bus, heading up to Graphite. Uh, she sat with a friend. And I ended up sitting by myself uh, in the bus. And I thought, okay, well, maybe she had something to talk to with, with her friend. And, and uh, as the weekend progressed, she ignored me. I had nothing to do with me. I felt really humiliated. Uh, and um, like just, just one thing after another, I could just barely wait till the weekend 
was over. And needless to say, that was the end of that very short-term dating relationship with this girl. Another scenario I want to share with you has nothing to do uh, with uh, this uh, girl that I was dating. Um, The scenario was of a potluck supper. And we're all familiar with potluck suppers. Everyone brings their food. Those who are more well-to-do have the opportunity to be able to arrive early, bring the best of food, bring the most of the food. Those who aren't quite as well-off arrive a little bit later, maybe don't bring as much food or not as nice a food. And, And some people weren't really able to bring food at all, but they all eventually showed up for the potluck. But the problem was, as the people who arrived later showed up, they realized that those who had arrived earlier and had brought the choice food and the majority of the food had already started to eat. In fact, most of the food was gone. Uh, And by the time the last people showed up, the food was gone, other than the the small amounts that these last people uh, had brought. And uh, while some of these people had hunger pains, the people that had gorged themselves on the food at the beginning were, were actually feeling stuffed. Some of them were actually falling asleep. Some had brought wine and, 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 and were drunk. And how these two scenarios tie in together, this fall retreat that I went to with this girl and, and, and this potluck dinner, is they both ended the same way. Both of them ended with the groups sharing in the Lord's table, in communion. And I got to tell you, at this fall retreat, I couldn't think of the, the wrongest thing that they could do than to celebrate the Lord's table. The Lord's table, which is a, a mutual participation by the redeemed community. And after what I'd experienced, they're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And at this potluck dinner, the audacity that they would end it by having communion together. It sounds so hypocritical, so wrong. I can't see what benefit there would be by celebrating the Lord's table in those conditions. In fact, you may question whether either of those really happened. Well, I can guarantee you the first one happened. And the second one I can guarantee happened as well because the Apostle Paul actually writes about it. And the text I want us to look at this morning is actually him writing about this potluck dinner that went all wrong. Uh, and uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you've got your Bible uh, or your, your app on your phone, turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and, and let's read together what Paul had to say about this potluck Supper that ended with the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat, For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then down to verse 27. 
So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Those who are hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. And so this morning, we're continuing this series that we've been in for quite some time. Let me remind you. And what we're looking at is truths and teachings of Scripture that are so important, so critical, that it's beneficial that we remind uh, each other uh, of these teachings, of these truths over and over. And, And one of the truths that I think is really important that we remind ourselves of, especially given the context of this passage, is the importance and the significance of the Lord's table, of the breaking of bread, of communion. Uh, we, we, we call it a number of different things. And, and over the 15 years or so that we've been here at Auburn, we've seen some significant changes in the way that we celebrate communion together. When, when my family first started here at Auburn, it was a separate service. We would have a breaking of bread service. And over the years, we've had sharing, open mic. We've had sharing where people have been chosen to share. We then combined it into one service so that we could attract as many people to, to take part in communion because of the importance that we felt there was. And, and uh, so we've done that. And, and, and then we have covid And COVID has been a great obstacle to so many things. And and one of the things that it has been an obstacle to is our celebration of communion and the way that we're able to do it and and even the frequency of how we have been able to do it. Uh, So even here, our experience of communion, of of the Lord's table, of breaking bread, uh, has seen some some significant change. But what's going on in Corinth to what Paul is writing about is quite radical. I mean, there's some problems going on here. Now, to give you a little bit of context, uh, in the days of the early church, the believers would often get together to celebrate what was known as the agape or the love feast. Uh, And what they would do, in keeping with Greek tradition, is they'd have a potluck supper. And uh, people would bring food, and some, again, who are rich, who maybe didn't have to work as late, would show up early. Those uh, who were poor, who had to work later, would show up at a later time. But it was a meal that was meant to be shared together in a spirit of, of, of love uh, and, and fellowship. And often, the believer's celebration of the agape, or the love feast, ended with having communion. But as I said, something went wrong in Corinth. And there was abuses that started to take place. And I already described them at the outset. What was happening is those who were rich, who had the nice food, who had lots of the food, were showing up early. And they weren't waiting for the poor people. 
They weren't waiting for those who would show up late. They were keeping all the food to themselves. They were filling themselves to the point that they had pains in their stomach and they were falling asleep and, and the, those who came late had nothing. And they couldn't even sit because, because the people that arrived there first had taken all the tables and, and, and they were kind of looking down on, on these other believers who had shown up and, and treating them like second-class citizens. And so this is what was taking place in, in their love feast. Again, it's supposed to be done in the spirit of love and fellowship. And this is what's taking place. And then to top it all off, they end it with communion. They, they celebrate the Lord's table. And Paul, he's not impressed. And he writes them a stinging rebuke. And he tells them, don't you get it? Your very behavior ensures that you are not achieving the results that you're actually hoping to achieve by celebrating the Lord's table. See, there was, there was believers who, who believed that if you obeyed the command of Jesus to be baptized and to remember his, uh, his death and resurrection by sharing in communion, if you did those two things, you could achieve the approval of God, this magical protection, as it were. And Paul says to them, no, nah, you got it all wrong. Your heart condition, your conduct, the, the attitude of your heart. Not only are you not achieving what you think you're going to achieve by going through the motions of celebrating the Lord's table, but you're getting, first of all, my rebuke. And you're actually experiencing God's disapproval. And in the passage, Paul goes on to explain that this behavior, this heart attitude, what they were bringing to the table resulted in serious implications and consequences. And the first implication was this. Their church was actually being divided by a celebration that was meant to express unity. I mean, we live in a world where there's all sorts of barriers, there's, there's all sorts of divisions. We're used to it. There's social, economic, race, sex. There's all sorts of divisions, all sorts of barriers. We could take the gathering that's here this morning and we could go into a totally, entirely different setting. And we could divide ourselves. Male, female, Canadian, not Canadian, rich, poor, old, young. But the beauty of the gospel message is that all the barriers have been removed. That at the foot of the cross, we're all on equal footing. When we partake in communion, not only are we being reminded that we have partaken in the suffering of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but as well we are symbolically demonstrating that we have become a member of Christ's body, the church. 
So by sharing communion together, not only are we identifying with Christ's death, we're identifying with Christ's body, the church. And so what was happening in Corinth? What was happening in Corinth is that they were taking a ordinance, a a, a ritual, a, a celebration that was meant to express unity And they were filling it with horrific disunity. They were celebrating the most unselfish, selfless act of history when Jesus gave up his life on the cross. And they were polluting the celebration with their selfishness. And Paul says, enough. Don't you see that your heart attitude, that your outer conduct is nothing less than sin. Nothing less than sin. What you are doing when you go through the motions of celebrating communion falls way short of what Jesus was looking for from his followers when he appointed the celebration of the Lord's table. And so implication one, the church was dividing itself through a ritual that was meant to express its unity. The second implication is that they were living a lie. They were coming together and at the end of their fiasco, they were celebrating the Lord's death. Well, part of what we remember about the Lord's death is that he gave his body to put away sin. And yet these Corinthian believers were were sharing communion together, knowingly cherishing and and carrying on in their sin. And Paul says, you're living a lie. You're living a lie. He says, your behavior has implications and your implications, these implications come with grave consequences. In our text, he shares some of those consequences. And the first thing he says is that when you sin against another believer, you're not just sinning against that other believer. Ultimately, you're sinning against Christ. And another consequence is that God isn't pleased that you are actually achieving his disapproval. And then the third consequence that Paul says is that when you bring this kind of heart attitude and this kind of conduct and this kind of unconfessed sin to the table, you're bringing grave judgment upon yourself. Not not that they were going to lose their salvation, but they would experience the, the fatherly discipline of God that was designed to bring about repentance. And as we see in, in, in Paul's letter here, Some experienced pretty grave consequences. And so what's the solution? Well, Paul gives us the solution in verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What's the solution? The solution is to ensure 
that we approach the table. My point there, because we used to have bread and juice sitting there. So imagine that sitting there. Ensure that we are approaching the table with a proper heart condition. Paul says, examine yourself. Examine here literally means test to approve. To, to, to judge yourself. To test the attitude of your heart. To test your outer conduct. To, to examine your understanding of the significance and the purpose of communion. And Paul wants us to know that if we're willing to do this, if we're willing to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to approve, that there will be some significant results. Examining ourselves will lead to soul-searching introspective as God reveals to us unconfessed and, and hidden sin. It will result in confession and, and the forsaking of sin. It would result in restitution uh, being made as we go to those who have offended us. Yes, we go to those who have offended us in order to make restitution, to make things right with them. It would result in acts of forgiveness as we go to those that we know we've offended and ask for their forgiveness. And the ultimate result of this solution of examining ourselves, ensuring that we approach the table with a proper heart condition is just that, that we will be approaching the table with a proper heart condition. But what's this have to do with us? I've been to many, many potluck dinners. It's one of the great things of being in a Bible chapel your whole life. Boy, people know how to cook. Great experience with potluck dinners. And, and the only thing that even came close that I can think of was back in my days in Toronto, one Wednesday night a month was a missionary supper. And as a youngster, I would tolerate listening to the missionary because you got a potluck dinner first. And I remember, and it would typically someone would arrive a little bit late because they had to work late. And maybe it was a single person, a single guy that was showing up. And he would bring a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I know that's, you can't admit, and I get in trouble when I admit that I love the smell of Kentucky Fried Chicken and I love the taste of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I know it will put me in the grave, uh, so I don't eat it very often. For a long time, I haven't eaten it, Allison, I promise. But when that bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken would come, we would uh, race to the table. Even if it wasn't our turn, we'd butt in line to make sure that we got a piece of the Kentucky Fried Chicken. But that's about as close as I can think that we, we came to what Paul was witnessing taking place in Corinth. So what does this possibly have to do with us? And the answer is everything. We already looked at the baggage of sin that the Corinthians brought to the Lord's table. What's our baggage? What's that heart attitude that's out of check? What's, what's that behavior? What's that unconfessed sin? What is it that we're bringing to the table? It's just as critical in 
2022 as it was 2,000 years ago for the Corinthians that we ensure that we have a proper heart attitude as we approach the table. It's critical that we are examining ourselves, that we are testing to approve ourselves, Because there's just as every much a possibility for the Lord's table, the celebration of communion, to become a going through the motions for us as it was for them. And I know it. You know, I think of communion, I was thinking about it this week. I still have memories in my mind of going down to the kitchen and seeing the communion, the wine juice holders in the sink and the thought going through the mind, oh, we did it again. Another week gone, especially if you had to be the one cleaning them or if someone didn't show up and they were supposed to fill them and, and some had to go downstairs and, and do a rush filling. It was just like, oh, here we go. Got to do it again. And how many times I mindlessly have shared communion here and at other places. And the Lord's Supper is a call for self-examination. And if we don't examine ourselves, we diminish the significance and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul says to us, just as he did to the Corinthians, everyone who approaches the table ought to examine themselves. Well, what do we examine? Well, first of all, we examine that we are in the faith. Communion is for those who have put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. So examine that you are in the faith. Secondly, we examine our heart condition. Ask God to reveal any hidden sin that's within. Ask God to convict us of those sins that we know are there because we keep doing them. We cherish them. We enjoy them. We hold them with tight hands and we don't want to give them up. We don't want to forsake them. We need to examine and have God convict us of those sins. Because if we are coming to the table knowing sin is in our life that we are continuing to do and we cherish it and we're unwilling to repent of it, what we are demonstrating is that we don't get the significance and the cost of sin. Now, that doesn't mean to celebrate communion you have to be perfect. If communion was only for perfect Christians, no one would be celebrating communion. Communion is for sinners. We all are debtors to God's grace. We all require forgiveness of sin to be approved and to be in right standing uh, with God. One of the words that, that confuses people is in verse 27, where Paul says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That word unworthy has, has caused so many to stumble. But the word unworthy here is not an adjective describing the person partaking in communion. Rather, it's an adverb describing the manner by which the person is participating. And so what Paul is saying here is you need to examine yourself. You need to confess. You need to deal with the sin and, and, and the, the improper heart attitude uh, in your life. 
But God isn't expecting perfection that we're going to know every hidden sin that we've forgotten about. But what Paul is warning is that when we come flippantly and apathetically and not caring to the table, be prepared for the consequences. So we examine whether we're in the faith. We examine our heart attitude. And then the third thing, which, which may sound like it deserves to be third on the list, last on the list, but it's actually the issue at hand in Corinth, is we examine how we are treating others within the Christian community. Are, those, are there those we have offended? Are those, there those who have offended us? Are there those that you would walk to the other side of the street to avoid? Are there those you try not to talk to on a Sunday morning and avoid? If there are, you've got to get things right. And what Paul is saying is, you're better off just kind of skipping this and dealing with those issues. And so we need to examine ourselves to ensure that our heart attitude is proper as we approach the table. Daniel and then you guys can come on up now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a little break, and I promise you the majority of my message you've already heard. Uh, but we're just going to take a, f- a, a few moments. We're going to sing some songs, have a time of reflection. And I want to ask a couple of questions as, as we lead into these songs. And then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to lead us, uh, finish off the message, and, and lead us uh, into communion. But let me just ask these questions to you. And, and this is to be a time, uh, as you listen to these questions, as we sing these songs together, if you don't want to sing, if you just want to have a time of quiet reflection, if you want to pray, if you want to kneel, if you've got to get up and go and talk to someone right Right now is the time to do it. So let me just ask these questions. And this is a real private time that we're going to be uh, entering into, even though we're singing songs uh, together. And here's the first question. Why this morning do you come to the table? Did you even know there was going to be the table? Is it because it's part of the service? Because you're told to? Somehow it's going to get you some kind of magic approval? How do we approach the table? How much thought do you give in approaching the table? Do we appreciate what the bread and cup signify? Are we living a lie? Partaking while we knowingly continue in sin? And does the heart condition we bring to the table contradict contradict the unselfish, unifying, loving, sacrificial work of Jesus symbolized in the bread and the juice. What is in your heart? What skeletons are in your closet that you're bringing with you? Do you feel remorse when our attitudes and actions are inconsistent with the love of Christ? Are we willing to renounce them? Oh 
pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are healed we are healed by sacrifice in the life that you give we are here for you paid the price by your grace we are saved we are saved he was for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are healed we are healed by your sacrifice the life that you gave. We are healed for you paid the price. By your grace we are saved. We are saved. What can wash but the blood of Jesus. In the middle of uh, Paul's stinging rebuke to the Corinthians, uh, he inserts a few verses that I skipped when I was reading it earlier. And uh, Paul wants to contrast what's taking place in Corinth to what Jesus actually instituted himself. And so if you look in 1 Corinthians 11 to those verses that I missed, uh, verses 23 through 26, Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what was Jesus doing? What was the significance behind what he did? What what was the meaning? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Daniel actually took us through from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so 
I'm not really going to repeat everything Daniel said because he did a fine job covering that for us. But what Jesus and his disciples were doing is they were celebrating the Passover, remembering one of the greatest redemptive acts of history when, when God frees the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And during that celebration, while Jesus was being betrayed... Jesus takes two everyday, ordinary objects and gives them great significance. And and it says that he he took a loaf of bread and he said, this symbolizes my body. My my body that I have unselfishly taken upon myself, leaving the splendor of heaven, coming to earth, taking upon myself a human body, And a body that I will give for you by allowing it to be nailed to a cross. And he takes a cup of wine. And he says, this this cup of wine symbolizes my blood that will be shed for you. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it's through my blood that people will come into right relationship with my father. And shortly after Jesus says these words, he's arrested, he's put on a fake trial, he's beaten, he's ridiculed, and he's nailed to a cross, and he's crucified, and he's put in a grave. And three days later, he raises from the dead. And so at Calvary... the greatest redemptive act of history takes place. Where Jesus is nailed to a cross, taking our sin upon him, and he's buried. And three days later, God the Father raises him from the dead. A stamp of approval, guaranteeing that everything Jesus said about his death, what it would accomplish, what it could achieve for us, was true, and and it would happen. And why so much focus on the death? Like before COVID, we did this every week. We came to the table every week. And, and, and I'm hoping soon we're going to go back to that. But, but, but why such a focus on the death of Jesus? And I, I asked Daniel and Linda if they, they could read one of my favorite passages of scripture for us this morning. Revelation chapter 5 where God is seated on the throne and there's the scroll that's in his hand that's going to reveal the final chapter of of his redemptive history. And yet there is horror in his audience because no one is found who is worthy to open that scroll. And then finally, someone says, there is someone who's worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah appearing as if slain, bearing the marks of crucifixion. It was Jesus. And what Revelation 5 tells us is that the core of Christianity is the cross of Christ. It's what Al spoke on last week. The death of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary for our salvation, for our eternal life, for our forgiveness of sin, for us to have a right standing with God. The death of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary. 
This Bible has all sorts of notes and papers that I've tucked in it over the years. I haven't used it for a while, but I pulled it out last weekend because I was preaching up on a beach and I wanted something small I could hold in my hand and I, I just used it again this Sunday. And I looked at the text for this morning and I realized that out of the whole page, I'd only put one line of ink, which is unusual for me. And it's in verse, boy, I wish. I don't use this Bible very much because it's so small, I can't even read it. What verse is that? In verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, and here's the two words I underlined, for you. This is my body, which is for you. And I looked at that this morning, I went, Me? I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to achieve it. I'm not worthy of it. And yet Jesus says, I know. But it's for you. I have given myself for you. And there's one thing I ask of you. Remember me. Remember me. And Jesus asks us to come to the table as a community of faith to take bread and juice, symbolizing his body and his blood, given for you, given for me. And when we do this together, we are proclaiming the supernatural work of Jesus on the cross. We are proclaiming the gospel message. I've done this for you. Will you do this for me? Remember me. And when I think of the word remember, I think of, oh yeah, I'm going to go back 2,000 years to this, this thing that took place a long time ago and I'm going to try to remember details of it. But that's not the understanding of the word remember used 2,000 years ago. The Hebrew word for remember actually means to go back 2,000 years ago and take that event and bring it into the present. And to fill your mind and fill your conscience and fill your heart and fill your emotions with what that event was 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is saying, I've done this for you, remember me. Fill your minds and your hearts with my gift to you my death on a cross. And so this morning we are going to remember Jesus. And uh, you should have received or taken, um, it was there, Linda, you have taken it from me. I had one. <laughs> Thank you. And so if you uh, grab one of these uh, this morning when you came in, we are going to remember the death of Jesus. And uh, instead of a lengthy prayer, I'm just going to ask that we just take a moment of silence. And this is a time for you uh, to come before the throne uh, and to pray and to reflect, to confess, to, to praise, to worship. Uh, and after that minute, I'll just give a, a short uh, prayer as, on behalf of this community. Uh, and then we can partake. And then Daniel and uh, Linda will lead us in one final song. So let's just take a moment of, of silent prayer and reflection. And then I will uh, give a final prayer.
Father, we come before you this morning as, as people who, who sin, who stumble, who, who mess up. And yet, Lord, those of us who have put our faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, we come before you as forgiven, as saints, as your children, and those who have been declared innocent because of the death of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we confess our sin. Lord, we are so sorry for our apathy and the carefree going through the motions that we we live out our Christian life at times. Lord, I pray that through Paul's word this morning and the example of Jesus, that you will convict our heart. Father, motivate us to get things right. For your glory, for, for the praise of your Son, and for the furthering of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we take this, this wafer and this juice which symbolize the, the body and the blood of Jesus given for us. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can partake, and uh, Daniel will come up with Linda in a moment. <laughs>